And uh, set before us is an interesting picture of a woman caught in adultery. Interesting passage only because you could put any person in that situation. And I think it serves as a great primer as to how we should view people and see people. But I'm going to start with verse 53, the last chapter. Get some light here. And everyone went to his own home. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Verse 2. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Interesting problem they present, don't they? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stopped or stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. But Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. But Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, but I'm, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your Father? And Jesus answered, You neither know me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had yet, not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and, and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say to you and judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Then Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, notice, many believed in him. Now, interesting to note as we approach this chapter, uh, in some Bibles, uh, you'll probably see in the margin that this, this story of the woman caught in adultery is not in some of the oldest or even in the best manuscripts. But that, of course, depends on your criteria and what you think is the best manuscript. 
The critics will argue and say that this story is not in the original, which really is an untrue statement because we don't have the originals. No one does. All we have are copies. It's interesting to note how the critics also reason about the authenticity of Scripture. You know, you hear them say, you know, there's over 600 uh, uh, areas here where there's a problem, or there's a thousand here, there's a thousand mistakes, or 500 mistakes here. Well, what they don't tell you is, when they get a copy, it's usually like a misspelled word. So if that word is reproduced over and over again, that's your mistake. That's You reproduce 500 mistakes, well, it's, a, it's a, an error in, in spelling. So they'll say it's 500 mistakes. No, it's one mistake just reproduced 500 times. So it's an untrue statement. I personally believe that story set before us is exactly where it's supposed to be. For instance, if you remove this story out of John chapter 8, it disrupts the flow from John's writing. You go from the end of the day in John chapter 7, where the Pharisees wonder why the officers haven't apprehended Jesus, to Jesus speaking to them again about those who follow him shall not walk in darkness, but that he is the light of the world. See, it doesn't make any sense. And, it, and it's not part of John's style. It's not the way he writes. No, it makes more sense that the story is placed exactly where it ought to be placed. And there are other reasons why this passage might have been omitted by some of the translations of the Bible. Do you know that some early church uh, leaders deemed the passage morally dangerous because Jesus forgives the woman and that the wives might think that if they commit adultery that, and, and get away with it, that you can't allow this line of thinking to run rampant in the church. I mean, after all, Jesus forgave an adulterous woman. So they're thinking, if the wives get a hold of this passage, they can commit adultery and it's all is forgiven. And so they think that's part of the reason why some of the early church fathers decided to omit the passage. They thought that Jesus was being soft on adultery. By the way, the NIV and ESV have this passage in brackets. In other words, it does not exist. It's not in the original. Matter of fact, I looked through some, of, some Bible helps, some commentaries. Some of them don't even give you a commentary in this passage because they're saying it does not exist. Isn't that interesting? Jerome, a late uh, or Latin church father, writing about, uh, about 396, uh, which is pretty close to the time, says, quote, In the gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, is found the story of the adulterous woman who is accused before the Lord. Interesting. Augustine, which I'm not a great fan of Augustine, but I, I refer to him only because, again, historically he existed, and he, he makes a comment himself. He notes the same thing, and, he's, and he ascribes a motivation as to why the, the people who were, were transmitting uh, the passage and why they left it out. He says, quote, Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, Remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he had said, sin no more, had granted permission to sin. Again, so the idea is they were afraid to add this passage to the scripture for fear it would give their wives permission to sin. Again, the Bible has much to say about adultery. If you've read the Bible for any length of time, you know that the scripture talks about spiritual adultery. You know, you go after uh, false idols. It's, you're, you're, you're supposed to be married to the Lord, but you're seeking another God. Or, or just in general, that we commit adultery and it's a heinous crime. It affects society. Furthermore, it was a sin punishable by death. Could you imagine if we, we uh, uh, exacted that law today? It wouldn't fly, would it? And when the early church read of Jesus' account of the woman caught in adultery and how he pardoned her, there were those, again, fearing the woman might feel like they have a license to sin. That this was not a big deal, as some were making it out to be. But 
I think what they missed is, and as you read the passage, uh, what the early church missed, and not all the churches missed this, but you can imagine how they reason this way. They, they fail to read the words that Jesus said. What he told the woman, he says, go and sin no more. He attributed, it was a sin. He's saying, go and sin no more. Again, I'm not saying the whole church felt that way, but I can see how people concluded to that. Now, regarding those manuscripts that were omitted in this passage, you have to understand, it's not like you have a page and these verses aren't there. Okay, So as we look at this, this portion of Scripture, here, here you have John chapter 8. It's not like you have John 8, and then you have all these verses, and this portion is missing. That's not what we're saying here. Uh, I'll just use the example of a cookbook. Okay? Uh, or I should say a, a recipe of chocolate cake. So you have a notebook, you have your, your, you know, what you think should go inside the cake and your eggs and whatever. You have this whole thing and how you should cook the cake, right? So you have this notebook and let's say it's 300 pages. Well, you know, in those days you didn't have the luxury of a PDF or, or printing. You had to do it manually. So you say, you know what, I'm going to go hire 10 people to help me reproduce my notebook. So I give one to Don, I give one to my wife, I give one to Mike. It's 10 people. And, they, and what they do then is they begin to copy, page by page, you know, word by word. Well, I take those, and I was, hey, it's selling, I like hotcakes, I want to make some more. Well, along the way, I take that one original copy, and somehow two pages fall out. Or two pages are removed. Wink, wink. So what you have is they're going to reproduce a notebook missing two pages. And that's probably what happened here. So there are still some good copies being circulated, but the vast majority were reproduced with the bad copy. Thus, the reason why you probably don't find this passage. Folks, I have no problem with this passage being here. I don't think God is in heaven saying to himself, man, I blew it. I can't believe it. I couldn't even preserve my own word. Believe me, I'm convinced and comfortable that it belongs here. And we're going to approach it as if it does, and it does. You know, John chapter 7, verse 53, it tells us that they all went to their own home, right? They all went to their own house, except in verse 1. Did Jesus go home? No. Where did he retreat to? The Mount of Olives. He went to the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't retreat to the house of Lazarus, Mary, or Martha. He didn't go to any of the disciples' houses. He went to the Mount of Olives. And we read the scriptures, and one of the scriptures, he would often retreat there, wouldn't he? And, and what was it like for Jesus as he walked alone in the evening towards the Mount of Olives? You know, I, I've been there. It's a beautiful view. You get to see the Temple Mount. You see the valley. And, and I can only imagine it's nighttime and and, and as he looked at, the, at, at the, the scene, I can only imagine what he was thinking. Did he consider that in a few months he was going to be arrested? That he's going to be crucified? And he's going to be betrayed by one of his own in the, of his inner circle? Or I wonder, did he look at the temple, knowing that in a, in a few short years it would be torn down brick by brick? Or did he ponder about the victory of the cross? And he looked forward to the future where he would return to the Mount of Olives from heaven as his foot would touch the mount and it would cleave in two and it would usher in the kingdom. So I wonder, what was he thinking as he's there at the Mount of Olives? Notice here it says in verse 2, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Notice this was a customary uh, position of a teacher which would hold as they taught their students. In that day, a teacher sat while everyone else stood. Unlike us here in the West, a teacher stand and everyone else sits. So you're blessed. Now you can imagine this scene and what's going on around him at the time. What's going on around the time? What's going on here? It's the Feast of Tabernacles. John chapter 7 verse 2 tells us this. So you can imagine the temple precinct was brimming over with the multitudes. Jews had traveled from all over the country. And it was one of the mandatory festivals that you had to attend. 
So you can imagine, the place is teeming with people. Thousands upon thousands of people. And the news has gone out regarding the notoriety of this man. They've all heard the whisperings. They all heard that this man is challenging the Pharisees. He's standing up to the religious authority. He's going around healing people, touching people. And so the people are, it's a, it's a twofold thing. They're going, okay, great, we're going to the feast, but you know what? We want to check this guy out. What's all the news about? And here he is, and he's teaching the people. Teaching the people. Now, it's early in the morning. It's before all the hustle and bustle of the people. And I think there must have been a, a quietness in the air before all the rumblings took place. And here they are, they're listening to Jesus teach. And now we're told that while he's teaching, and the scene presents itself here in verse 3, what's it say? Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now I want you to envision in your mind's eye, Jesus is there teaching. And people are locked in, man. They're focused. And there's very little noise occurring. And all of a sudden, here's this disruption that's coming. This kick in and scream. We can hear a woman's voice and, and just this bustle coming through. And, and they just drop this woman in the scene. You know, and, and it reminded me. A few years ago, Pete Mornay. Some of you may remember him. Um, he's gone home to be with the Lord. He was one of our first ushers. And, and, you know, they would position him usually uh, in the sanctuary, front row, center aisle. And that's where he would sit. Great guy. And you have to understand, he was retired at the time. And so he dedicated the last part of his life here, serving the people of God. And I remember, I just would come in like clockwork. He'd be there every Sunday. And I'm sitting in the back with my wife. And Xavier's in the middle of the teaching. And all of a sudden, I see Pete go limp. And, and it happened that, you know, he carried this Bible the size of an encyclopedia. Okay? And I'm looking at him, and his arm just drops. And this Bible drops right in the center of the aisle. And it just, boom! And it echoed throughout the sanctuary. Man, the guy passed out of sleep. Okay? He is out. And I'm just going, oh, this is awkward. What are we going to do? You know? And, and it's a disruption, right? You're going, what do you do? And... Well, we don't want to create distractions. It's more of a distraction to go over there and, okay, wake him up, pick up the Bible. and we just No one said anything. Just, just looked at him and just kept teaching and, and kept going, you know. But the scene here is different. Jesus is teaching. People are locked in. And here they come with this woman. And you can imagine the noise. I mean, she is probably kicking and screaming all the way there. And here are the Pharisees, they catch this woman caught in adultery. And you know, again, you know she's not coming quietly. We look at this scene and it looks so, you know, sensitized, so, so clean. And it's not. Here this woman's being dragged in. She's kicking, she's punching, she's probably screaming, she's hurling insults. She's probably half naked. Maybe she only has a sheet covering her. And she knows these guys are a bunch of phonies. They're a bunch of hypocrites. She knows these guys and who they are. And here they are. They're dragging her through the temple precincts, through the crowds, kicking and screaming. And they cast her right in the middle where Jesus is teaching. Everyone is watching. And you know how awkward that can be. What is, what is going to happen? What is Jesus going to say? What does the law say? I can only imagine you're sitting there and they, and they start to think, and notice what they said. Teacher. Which they didn't come there to learn a lesson, did they? Teacher. Not because they love the truth. They came there specifically trying to catch him with his words. This woman, she's caught in adultery. In the very act. In the very act. What do we do? It says, now Moses in the law, verse 5, command us that they should, that such should be stoned. But... What do you say? They locked him up, didn't they? They thought they had him trapped. 
they caught the woman in the very act. Le- Leviticus 20, verse 10 says, A man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. Go ahead and look at Jewish law today. No such thing. They omitted this. Is that's too harsh? That's what God's law says. No, that's too harsh. Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two says, If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then both of them shall die. You shall put this evil away from Israel. And we could say sit here and go, that's harsh. Right? But there's a reason for it, people. There's a reason. It's not harsh. When you understand the impact it makes on families, those little children, society. Do you think I want to come home and realize that my wife's committed adultery? Or my kids see that? They think it's okay? Again, adultery, the sexual sin, and it was serious in the Old Testament. It was a crime punishable by death. Again, it affected the culture and society. Do you know in some ancient cultures, what they would do is they'd take the adulterer and cut off their nose? Or they would take them and quarter them? Or bury them in manure until they died? And plant a tree over you? It was serious business. Under the Talmudic law, the severity of the Mosaic Code was in many instances modified and the laws relating to adultery came under the influence of a milder theory of the relation of crime and punishment. I'm I'm reading from the Talmud. The rabbis went so far as to declare that a woman could not be convicted, listen closely, could not be convicted of adultery unless it had been firmly shown that she knew the law relating to it. So in other words, it was better to keep her ignorant. So that way she wouldn't be punished. Isn't that interesting? They would not convict her because ignorance was bliss. It was a theory that resulted in the practical impossibility of convicting any adulteress. No harm was done by this new view because the right of divorce, which remained to the husband, was sufficient for to free him from the woman, who, although guilty of the crime, was not punishable by the law. Upon this mild view followed the entire abolition of the death penalty in the year 40, before the destruction of the second temple. When the Jewish courts, probably under pressure of the Roman authorities, relinquished their right to inflict capital punishment. Thereafter, the adulterer was scourged and the husband of the adulteress was not allowed to condone her crime, but was compelled to divorce her and she lost all her property rights under the marriage contract. Nor was the adulteress permitted to marry her paramour, in other words, the person she cheated with. And if she married him, they were forced to separate. So that was the extent of the punishment. She lost her, her property rights and she was not allowed to marry. This only underscored the seriousness of sexual sin outside the sanctity of marriage. Today, the sanctity of marriage is all but an antiquated notion or a byword. There is no real punishment for adultery. Unfortunately, it's promoted or celebrated, especially in our entertainment industry, isn't it? You see in the movies, you hear in the music being played over the airwaves. Um, We are constantly being bombarded, and slowly but surely, our culture has made it more palatable to enjoy. And unfortunately, our kids have to grow up in this mess. And we have to try to guard their hearts from the influence, pressuring them to think that it's okay when it's not. Folks, I don't want my children to think that marriage comes with options. I don't want them to think that, hey, you know, there's A, B, and C after marriage. No, there's only one option. It's A. There's no B and C. There's not like, oh, I can get married and you know what? Okay, I can have B and C. No. Only one option. And that's option A. The person I married. That's God's plan. Because the moment I think I have option B, I'll take option B. I'll take option C. That's my carnality. That's your carnality. I'll look for opportunity. That's our flesh. You know, I was thinking about this week. Uh, 
Usain uh, Bolt, or Insane Bolt, whatever you want to call him. Uh, insane. <laughs> um, the, the, the celebrated Olympic sprinter. You know, it wins three medals. On Monday, this past Monday, the 22nd, the news of him fooling around with three women while in Rio went viral. There are pictures of him kissing and embracing these women. while he, All the while, he's engaged to a woman for two years. Okay, two years. Would you say he's good marriage material? Good news. There are more pictures that came out today that when he, came, when he landed on Monday, he was partying in London and he was seen with a taxi full of women going to his hotel room. So it didn't stop. And we don't have to talk about the Kardashians or Brad Pitt or President Clinton, should we? As our examples. So here they are. They bring this woman kicking and screaming. They say, this woman was caught in the very act. It's kind of interesting uh, and funny. She was caught in the very act. But with whom? Where's the guy? And especially if you read Mosaic Law, it tells you you must have the second party present. Where is the second party at? He's missing. So, now Moses and the law command us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stopped or stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. They are hoping to entrap him by his own words. They said, you know, they figured, if he says stone her, you know, you know, if he said Moses is right, let's go ahead and let's stone her, uh, then they would, he would be in danger of sedition by the Roman courts. Okay, because they had taken uh, uh, away from the Jews the power of, of capital punishment in 30 A.D., so you can imagine if they stoned her. Could you imagine? He said, go ahead. You're right. You're right. Let's go ahead and stone her. They stone her. They'll bring the body to the Roman authorities. Hey, this guy, Jesus, sanctioned this. You know, he's usurping your authority. So they have something in which to accuse him. He'd be in a lot of trouble. Now, if he said she shouldn't be stoned, they would accuse him of false teaching and discredit him with the people because he usurped the law of Moses, didn't he? And Moses, of course, was... The man. And order would have been restored to the Pharisees. Again, a pretty diabolical plan, considering that this was not the way it should have been handled. This should have went to the courts. Then they should have brought witnesses. Then they would have passed judgment. But these guys bring this woman and cast her in the midst of this group. And they knew this case would never went to court because they lacked the requirements. In John chapter 18, verse 31, we're told of the same group of religious leaders. They, they brought Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate says to them, You take him, and you judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Again, proving that only Rome had the power of capital punishment. But what about in the book of Acts? You know, They took Stephen, didn't they? And they drug him, and, and the mob just jumped all over and they threw stones and they killed him, right? That was an act of frenzy. It was an illegal act. That was an illegal act. It was a mob mentality. They killed the man with stones. So here they bring a woman and they ask Jesus, what do we do with her? What do we do with her? If his response is stone her, they'll report him. If he says don't stone her, then he's usurping the clear teaching of the law. So they have him teetering between these two issues. Again, they did all these things hoping to accuse him. But here he is. <laughs> he stooped down on the ground and he's rutting on the floor. Now, here's one of those areas of scripture where we all wish we all knew what he was writing, right? How many teachers have you heard? Well, he's doing this. He's saying, we don't know. But he's, if you know, hey, I'd like to know. But inquiry minds want to know. Evidently, the emphasis is the fact that he's writing something on the ground, which they can all see. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, as, as we've been reading this, have taken your attention off the woman and are now more interested in, in what he's writing? Think about that. Look what he's doing. 
And I think that's the point. There he is teaching. They cast this woman right in the middle of everyone, interrupting the whole thing, asking the question. And he acts like he's unfazed. He's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. They're going. And he's just, yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't stand up. He doesn't say, hey, what's your problem? Can't you see I'm teaching? No, he's just, no, I'm just here writing. He says on the ground. And you can just see the whole crowd trying to make out what he's writing on the ground. He's masterfully taking their attention off of the woman and directing it towards himself. And I believe that's by design. I believe that's what he wanted to do. Don't you also find it interesting that we don't know her name? Her name is not even mentioned. He doesn't want to embarrass her any more than she already is. We don't know if she's the one who's married or if she's committing adultery with a married man. Either way, no doubt she is committing adultery. She may have, had, she may have been married with children, uh, but we don't know nothing about her. Nothing about her. But Jesus has no... His intent is not to magnify her sin. You notice that? He doesn't say, you know, let's, let's magnify this. Let's make this headline news. I could, I could score big points with everybody. He doesn't do that. Hmm. He has no desire to hammer her. And he's so unlike us. We're so good at taking the law and pointing out other sin, aren't we? We may not throw stones, but we throw the stones of gossip. We, we, we assassinate people's character by the words we say behind closed doors. It's interesting to hear the ideas of what Jesus wrote on the ground. You know, some people say hey, he was probably there writing out the Ten Commandments, right? Or... He sees a couple, hey, Mike, Mike, okay, you know, stealing. You know, Lucy, well, you know, she's smoking. Uh, you know, so he's, he's there and he's writing all these things down. And, and so we don't know. We don't know what he's writing. All those present are looking. What is he writing? Is it in response to the Pharisees' question? We're not told. And in verse 7 it says, So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. He's as if he's tuned out from them. And they're, they're saying, well, what do we do with this person? What do we do with this woman? Do we stone her according to the law of Moses? What do you say? And so they continue and he raised himself up. And he's saying, you know, guys, you're right. Moses did say, if someone commits adultery, let's stone them. Let's get the show on the road. Hey, let's do this thing. Let's go ahead and do it. And I could just see this scene. Here's the mob. They're, they have their stones uh, hand, and it's in their hands ready to pull the trigger. And I could just imagine this, here's this half-naked woman there in the midst, no doubt concerned over her own life. Think about it. We forget that too. This is a real scenario. This woman could die. She's seen other people die being stoned to death. And here she is half-naked. There's no protection. No one protecting her. Who's there that she knows? No one. She doesn't call out for help. And here they come with their stones ready to stone her. He said, let's do this. He says, but also, look, notice what he says. He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. This is the only place in Scripture where the phrase without sin occurs. The only place. And the, and the Greek word means one who has not sinned and one who cannot sin. That's an interesting phrase. Because there's only one there who can say that. Only one present. Now, let me tell you something. Jesus is not at all saying we cannot make a judgment call. Nor does it mean that church at large cannot make decisions, especially in the case of church discipline. Because look, there are folks in sin who will say, you know, Fernando, who are you to judge? Who are you? And, and what they're saying is, you're imperfect just like myself. So who are you to judge? And, and, and you know, it's true. We're imperfect, aren't we? Everyone in this room, we've all sinned somehow. We're all sinners saved by grace. However, as a church, we're encouraged to make decisions over church order and discipline. You know, I had a discussion with a young man not too long ago regarding serving. And they alluded to me about their, their sin in their life. I said, you know what, um, let's do this. 
why don't we talk in a few months? And at that point, we'll, we'll address it and see if, you know, whether you can you, you start serving. But I wanted to see where they were at, where their commitment level was. And then he says, come on. Well, haven't you sinned before? He turned around on me. He says, haven't you sinned before? I went, yeah, I've sinned before. But I'm not the one in sin. You are. You're, you just admitted you're sinning. I'm not there. You are. I thought, how, how do you just turn that around? And, and that's so like us. Again, we're not sinless. We're not perfect. But the issue is repentance and moving on. Not justification or turning a blind eye to it. Listen, if, if that were the case, the judges in the Old Testament couldn't do it because they weren't perfect, were they? They had to, they had to hear cases that were, were brought before them. They weren't perfect. But we can make a judgment call. We can reason. We have the Word of God. The idea here is let that person who is innocent and regards to sin cast the first stone. If you're innocent, hey, have at it. That's what Jesus was saying. Have at it. Notice verse 8. And again, he stooped down and he started to write on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now imagine you're there, stone in hand, and Jesus says, all right. The law says stone such a one. Let's, let's do it. He who is without sin, throw the first stone. And then he stoops right back down. Okay, he starts writing again. You know, you're like, oh, shoot. <laughs> what am I innocent of? I can't. I've sinned. And notice it says, those who heard it being convicted of their conscience... Notice, it doesn't say those who read what was on the ground. How many times do we read that? It's, it's misleading, isn't it? We think they're reading something, they're convicted by what they read. No, he says, those who heard it were convicted. Those who heard it were convicted. All these commentators suppose it was something they read on the ground when the scripture plainly tells us they heard it and were convicted. That means they understood. They knew perfectly well. They understood, and one by one, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Notice the oldest to the youngest departed. I think, why the oldest to the youngest? Uh, ask Don. I mean, oh, I'm, I'm kidding, Don. No, I mean, the, I think because the older you, you, as you get older, you have enough life experience. I'm not saying you had more sin, but you've had more time to sin. And you realize, I've had a whole, this is my first rodeo. I've sinned quite a bit in my life. And they left first. The younger are kind of ignorant. They're still trying to get a clue, but they, they realize, you know what? We're just as guilty. I'm not, I'm not guiltless here. We're all guilty. And there they are, Jesus is still writing as the mob departs. And their stones begin to drop one by one until the last person departs. And there's the woman standing in the midst with the crowd. Imagine what that was like for the woman. No doubt stunned by what she must have thought for sure was a slam dunk. They caught me. I'm here with my sheet. I mean, they caught me. I'm going to die. And, she, and, she, and here she is. She's thinking, this was a slam dunk. And they're all gone. All the Pharisees have walked away. And here's this man, unfazed by the mob. Who is he? Who is this guy that just defended me? And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Boy, it's the same thing he says to us. Where are your accusers? The one who can condemn isn't. Woman, the term was used of Mary, his mother, in John chapter 2. Where Jesus is there at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And the term is also used by Jesus as he's hanging on the cross. And he turns to Mary regarding John. He says, woman, behold your son. The term is given the sense of highest respect. And unfortunately, we don't have an English word 
that can match it. The closest we can get is ma'am. That's the closest we can get. Doesn't even come close. And this is how he addresses her. He doesn't say, harlot, get up. Whore. Doesn't say that. He uses the most tenderest term he can use. And I like that. He looks at his creation. He could be a druggie, a drunkard. That's why I tell you, it doesn't matter who you are. He, he elevates the place where you're at. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And I wonder how he said it. Again, I wonder how he even looked at her. And I don't think he was condescending, nor did he, was he degrading. He says, woman. Again, a place of tenderness. And what a great lesson for us on how we should treat people. How we treat the druggie. How we treat the liar. The adulterer. Because immediately we look at them and go, I wouldn't want to be around that person. We kind of distance ourselves, don't we? What a great lesson for all of us. Listen, this woman was someone's child before. She had parents. We don't know about her family life, what it was like. She might have had great parents. She might have had great siblings. We don't know. She might have grown up like a lot of little girls, you know, wanting to put on makeup, playing with the dolls, learning to comb her hair, dreaming of her knight in shining armor, plans of a great wedding. But somewhere along the way, sin took its toll. And her heart began to harden. Somewhere in my life, in your life, sin began having the same effect. All of us in this room have history. All of us have a rap sheet somewhere. And you know. And here she is entangled by the cords of her sin. And maybe at some point in her life, she wanted to know more about God. But the Pharisees turned her off. Maybe she didn't want the God, the type of God they were pushing. Maybe the way they described God it was a God that she couldn't relate to. And she decided to live a life of self. And that, that should warn us in how people see us as believers. They say, you're a Christian. Why are you drinking? Why are you cussing? Why are you laughing at those things? And people say, why would I want to be a Christian if you're no different than me? You see? She didn't see or know of a God that loved her. And listen, Jesus sees all that in her. He sees all the baggage that she has. He saw a woman with all her sin. And he says here, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go sin no more. Notice he didn't say you committed adultery. Shame on you. He didn't say you did something wrong. Interesting is, is you need at least two witnesses to convict someone. And here he is the only one out here. Then the one that could condemn her. And he doesn't. He said neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The tense is the present active imperative. What does that mean? He's saying go and no longer make sin a part of your lifestyle. Don't continue sitting as a pattern of your life anymore. That's what the tense is telling us. He says, rearrange the order of your life. Stop your sin. And I'll tell you this, when I, when I study the passage, believe me, I'm convicted. Have you really stopped sinning, Fernando? You know, you're right. I make allowances in my life. Sin no more. That's, that's what the scripture is telling us. Quit this pattern of sin in your life. Go and sin no more. He's just not telling her this is an object lesson for all of us present, including us. Go and no longer make sin a pattern in your life. Have you noted that? Have you noted that in your life? Or do you make allowances in your life? And what was it like for her? Because a minute earlier, she literally could have wound up dead there on the ground. Literally, a minute earlier, they had stones in their hands. And what was that like for her thinking? I could have just died just a few seconds ago. 
What was that like for her? Did she, did she prepare for the worst? And in, in, in her shock, she's just standing there dumbfounded? Or after hearing this news, did she finally just give him a glance and, and she took off with her eyes filled and bolted from the temple? Or did she stand there in bewilderment, in shock? She'd been pardoned. And the story doesn't end there for me regarding her. I wonder what her life was like after this moment. I wonder if she went home and became faithful to her husband. If she had one. Or maybe she got married afterwards and was committed to that marriage. And I wonder if she had children and and she would hug them just a little bit more than usual. She embraced her husband just that much more. And as the years would go on, I wonder if she would reflect and and look back at that moment and realize, I should have been dead. And she's not. I think about that. And I wonder. Because I look back, and I'm sure you do. And you look at what your life would have been like without Christ in your life. And I'm sure she sat there and just, man, second lease on life. Notice verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This is one of the seven I am statements. He says, I am the door. I am the bread of heaven. I am the light of the world. As a matter of fact, John uses the word world over 77 times, more than the other three gospels. He, He likes that phrase, the cosmos. He says, I am the light of the world. Notice, the word he is in italics. He. Look, look at verse 24 here. What's the same verse 24? He says, Therefore, I said to you, excuse me, I can barely adjust here. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, notice that he is in italics. In other words, it's not there. I am he is in italics. And usually the translators would put words or add words to make sense to our English versions. And sometimes, and most of the times, it shouldn't be there. So it says, I am. It's the, it's the phrase, ego ami. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, you know that, that part of the passage in the Old Testament where Moses is speaking to the burning bush? He says, I am. It's translated ego emi, the same phrase here. I am. It's a statement of deity. He said, if you do not believe that I am, again, there is no he there, you will die in your sins. Look at verse 28. What verse 28 says. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, that means his crucifixion, then you will know that I am. I am. Look at verse 58. Verse 58 says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Notice the translators didn't put he there. Because they all understood what he's claiming there. Very clear. He is claiming deity, that he is God. If that wasn't true, then look at the next verse. Because they all picked up stones to stone him. They all understood what he was claiming. He was claiming that he was God. They understood. So here he looks at the crowd and he says in verse 12 again, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, he's not talking about the uh, light the way you and I see light. Everyone knows what light is. But Jesus is talking about a different kind of light. He's talking about a spiritual light. One that penetrates the heart. One that penetrates the mind. I can't put a flashlight in my heart, can I? Or my mind. He's talking about a different light. A spiritual light. One that sheds light in my mind and my heart. Now, if you're fighting or struggling over sin, if you're under conviction over something you're struggling with, that's because God is shedding light in that area. In order that you might not sin. You guys struggle with that, don't you? It's because God is shedding light in that area. 1 John 1.5 says... This is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, 
we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So again, walking in the light is where we walk as opposed to walking in darkness, walking in sin. It's where we walk. It's not how we walk. It's where we walk. Want to get that? (laughs) Listen, I think you and I are aware of where we walk. We're not ignorant, okay? God turns on the spiritual light, and we have no excuse. I know when I'm sinning. You know when you're sinning. You know when you're struggling, right? We have no excuse. I'm aware of the things that God is dealing with me, the things that entice me, the things I am tempted with, and I can't escape His conviction. And I come to the Lord, I confess my weaknesses. And, and the scripture says that when I do, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. Amen. Because I need to be washed. You know, some people, I shared this before with some of you. When people say, oh, you know, you're Christians, you guys are brainwashed. You're darn right. I need my brainwashed. I need my brainwashed. And the blood of Christ does that. He cleanses me from all sin. And here's Jesus, he's telling us he is the light of the world. He brings to light things within us, in our minds, in our hearts. The moment you get saved, man, the light comes on. The day is different, isn't it? The things you used to think about. I remember I got saved, man, I had a pack, my, a pack of cigarettes, I'm going, I'm saved. It's the day after, I'm going, I can't smoke. For some reason, I know I'm not supposed to be smoking. Drinking is not a problem. I know I'm not supposed to be drinking, but I can't. You know, I can't be doing these things. God turns on the light. And that's how I knew. I knew I was born again. I was different. You didn't have to tell me. You didn't have to convince me. I knew I was saved. Because God turns on the light. You see things completely different. Notice he, he says, He who follows. Again, the tense is a present active participle. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. In other words, shall not organize or order his life in darkness. You're not, your priorities are going to be different. He says you're not going to continue to follow him doing those things. Your life is going to be different. You know, people ask me, you know, what is my calling as a Christian? What is my calling? What do I do? I tell them, first of all, you're called to be a servant. Second of all, God has given us gifts. He tells us in 1 Peter, every one of us has been endowed with a gift. For what purpose? For the purpose of serving the body of Christ, to edify one another, that you and I would be encouraged. Well, what else do I do? Well, get up. Start serving. Because I tell you what, if you're going to sit in a pew, you're doing nothing. So how are you going to know the calling of God in your life? But if you get up, I promise you, day by day, He will begin to lead you and direct you. And you will know your calling as you go. You know, this morning I had a meeting with, uh, some of you know, uh, Walter and Danielle Medina. They moved up north. They served here faithfully for years. She's up in my office crying. and We're having a good time. And, and the reason why she came down was not just to say hello because now they've asked them to oversee their children's ministry. So they're like, we need help. And so we sat down and we started talking about children's ministry. And we started talking. And, and it came to my, you know, it just, the light came on. I'm sitting there thinking, and if it wasn't for you being faithful and serving, you wouldn't know your calling. And there they are. And they're telling me how, you know, they waited till the last week. They're thinking they're going to move somewhere else. And all of a sudden the door opened up here. They got a house exactly where they needed to be. Church is five minutes away, and here they are. They they ran. They they gave them the baton to run VBS. That was enough uh, of a green light for the pastor to say, you know what, you need to oversee the children's ministry. And here they are. And they said, we know we're called. How do they know they were called? Not because they were sitting in a pew. They were engaged with the body of Christ. They were moving, and God will lead and direct you. But that ha- it's a day. By day revelation. You, you won't see that sitting in a pew. You need to get out of your comfort zone. You have to get up. 
He says, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What an amazing statement, especially when you consider where he was saying this from. The temple's in the background. Okay? The Old Testament Israelites, when they traveled, what led them by night? A pillar of fire. When that pillar of fire was gone, what replaced it? The menorah, which was in a temple, right? Seven, seven branch candlestick. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What an amazing statement. The same light that led the ancient Israelites and led them then is the same light that guides us now. What an amazing statement. I am the light of the world. Well, quickly here, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is, he, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. Notice that. You see, they couldn't condemn the woman to death without the testimony of two witnesses. He says, hey, I bear witness of myself, and guess what? The Father bears witness of me. There's two. You can't condemn me. For which of these works do you condemn me, he says. His I am one and, and bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Again, he's, he's saying the Father is bearing witness of me. Verse 19. Then they said to him, Where is your father? And this is where they begin to get nasty, okay? Where is your father? And, and again, like politicians, when, they, when they, it's getting close to election time, they get real nasty. They pull out that drawer and, and they start pulling everything out. Verse 20. <clears throat> he says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. He, he'll turn the tables on them in verse 41. He's going to say to them, you do the deeds of your father. And then they say to him, we're not born out of fornication. That's what they tell him in verse 41. Hey, hey we weren't born out of fornication. We know who our father is. It's God. God is, God is our father. In other words, we know who our father is. Evidently, they are fully aware of Mary's pregnancy prior to her marriage. So they, we know who our father is. Do you know who your father is? That's what they're saying. They're getting nasty. So they exploited the rumors and the gossip. But then again, Jesus says to them in verse 19 once again, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would also known my father also. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 14? Tells his disciples, that if you had known me, you'd know the father. Same thing here. Same thing. You had known me, you know the Father. And I, again, listen, I don't think Jesus is being caustic to them. I, I, I don't think he's demeaning them. Because as he looks out of the crowd, he knows who's going to be saved. As he looks at those Pharisees. He knows Nicodemus. He comes to faith. The book of Acts tells us there are plenty of priests who get saved. So I can imagine he's not there. But yet he is, he is firm with them. He didn't crumble under their pressure. Verse 21, then Jesus said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Again, that's a very jarring and thought-provoking statement. As he looked at the Pharisees, again, he knew which ones would turn and he knew the ones who would not, who would not turn and come to faith. Imagine that. That's a pretty heavy thing. To look out the crowd and understand that, you know what? So-and-so is not going to come to faith. So-and-so is. So-and-so is not. He knew their hearts. Verse 22. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, Where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's the problem here. The issue is unbelief. 
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by what? The Holy Spirit. He says, if you don't believe that I am God, you will die in your sin. Folks, when you look at all the religious systems out there, they all have something in common. Okay, Take all the religious systems. As a, again, as it pertains to the gospel, they all attack his virgin birth. They attack the word of God. They attack the resurrection. But more importantly, they attack his deity, that he is God. They look for another way, but there is none. He is the only way. Verse 25, And they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to him, Just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. Interesting commentary given to us by John. He's an older man now. Okay, And as he's penning this gospel, he's looking and he's reflecting and he says, they didn't understand. He's talking to them about the Father. Because to them, it was religion. There's no relationship. He says, they missed it. They missed the fact that he was talking about the Father. And then Jesus said to him, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing to myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. What amazing things to say. Because if it's true, think about this. If this is true, then the greatest person in the universe is sitting there in front of them. That's heavy. The claims he is making. These are claims that no other person has made. And if they're true, God incarnate is in front of them. What do you do with that? And I wonder if some of them sensed something they had never sensed before. That this was different. And I wonder if their hearts were conflicted. Man, this guy is saying some radical things. No one spoke like this. Matter of fact, it tells us that in John seven forty six, when they went to go arrest him, right? They sent the guards. And they said, why haven't you apprehended him? He says, no man has ever spoke like this man. And there they are. God's in their midst, in their presence. And he says, I always do those things that please the Father. And he's looking at them and, he's, and he says, the Father has sent me. The Father bears witness of me. And if you do, do not believe that I am the I am, you will die in your sins. He didn't mince words. He didn't mince words. What, I can imagine. There, I'm sure there's some Pharisees sitting there going, maybe he's right. But they're afraid to say it because of the pressure of the Pharisees. Maybe he's right. I mean, after all, he speaks truth. His works bear witness of him. And then he says, I always do those things that please him. I wonder in their religious minds, did they think that that stoning that woman would please the Father? Think about that. Did they really think that, hey, God would be pleased if we stoned that lady? Ready to hurl rocks is God's idea? Did they think that this is something that God loved? And yet Jesus says, I always do those things that please the Father. How many of you can say that? How many of this room say, you know what? I get up and I please the Father. Get in line. <laughs> you know, as I consider this woman caught in adultery, it really spoke to me about grace and how much we need to understand it. Otherwise, we too will pick up rocks to throw. Yet, as I'm holding the rock... God turns it around and says, okay, let's take a look at you, Fernando. What would you, what would you rather prefer, rocks or grace? You want to see how quick I let go of that rock? Right now, I want grace. And no wonder, verse 30 tells us, 
As he spoke these words, many believed in him. You see, what the Pharisees were projecting was not the God of the Bible. Not the God of love. Not the God of grace. Not the God of mercy. They're ready to use the law to beat someone up. To throw rocks. To kill. And here Jesus stands. He says, I do always those things that please the Father. And by releasing that woman, by showing grace, that is what pleases the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this passage. Lord, that you are gracious. That we don't stand here looking at the law busted, thinking we're just going to hell, that we can't please you, that you don't love on us. But we thank you for your son for making these things very clear. And so, Lord, we pray you just go before us this evening. And if there's anybody here, maybe you've heard the message and you've not quite yielded yourself to the Lord and you want to do that tonight, not here to embarrass you, but if this is something you want to do, you can do that right where you're at. You don't have to stand up or raise your hand. This is something that that takes place in the heart. And you can just repeat this prayer after me. Father, I come to you. In Jesus' name, Lord, I confess my sin to you. I am a sinner, and I accept your Son as my Lord and my Savior. Forgive me, Lord, and direct me all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, Lord bless you. If you need prayer, I'll be up here. Any questions? If you have questions, email me. <laughs> Lord bless you. Uh, I have a question. <laughs> yeah.